Good morning. Hey, hey, um, before we uh, before we rock into the life of Dr. King, I just want to remind you, we've been doing this for quite a long time. If you've been a part of Three Rivers Church, uh, you know uh, All Saints Day is special for us. Now, this isn't All Saints Day. That's November 1st. But this year, uh, All Saints Day, the Sunday after All Saints Day, fell when our students were going to camp at Snowbird. And so I wanted to make sure they were here for that. So we pushed our biography sermon to this date so that our students could be present. So I'm super glad for that. But we do this. And we've done this as a history in our church, as a tradition, because we want to see how God's work in the gospel affects everybody from all walks of life. And we have studied saints um, from my favorite, personal favorite, Anna Kleist Gambold, who is a local uh, Moravian, local, she's Moravian, you know, it's not local, but a Moravian who came to our geographical region, the first successful mission among the Cherokee. That sermon's actually quoted and on file at the University of Georgia in the botany department. I'm so proud of that because she was a botanist. And so using her domain to reach Cherokee people, uh, all the way to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so we want to see the gospel at work in the lives of, of people who shaped our world. And so that's why we do this. Why Dr. King? This past April uh, marked the 50th anniversary of his murder. Uh, at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, as he was speaking regarding uh, poverty and working conditions on behalf of white and black in Memphis, Tennessee, particularly sanitation workers. He was murdered by James Earl Ray on April 4th, 1968. And so this was a, a, an apt time that coupled with the reality that our nation, our city is beset with these issues today. And the fact that if you take a look at my family, you'll notice that my family is a multi-ethnic family. And that fact catapulted into our lives these issues that we had to learn to face. And we had to begin to find answers to questions that were coming up. So the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I put a title over this. You can see it on the blog. It is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., God's Prophet of Love as Resistance. To evil. Jeff, can you talk to me? I have no clue what you're saying. I can't see. Switch the pack. I can't see with my glasses on. I can't see with them off. So when I got to see my notes, I can't see them. And all I saw was arms. And so, we good? Alright, very good. So, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., God's prophet of love as resistance to evil. God's prophet of love as resistance to evil. Born January 15th, 1929. By the way, I asked for a little latitude and time. I, I don't like this Sunday because I've spent a year studying the life of a saint. And I have more than I can share with you in the allotted time. So, I'm going to take more time. So, buckle up. Be good. We're going to get there. And so, just hang, okay? So, little latitude, alright? Born January 15th, 1929. And he was murdered April 4th, 1968, by James Earl Ray. Uh, Dr. King was 39 years old. He accomplished in 39 years of life as a prophet, speaking the word of the Lord. I want to say this on the front end, and I think this is important. In a lot of white evangelicalism, we have a tendency when we hear about Dr. King to push back Based upon things we have heard other people told us. Because of some doctrinal leanings. And that was because of his education. And we're going to get there in just a few moments. So hang with me. Okay. So we push back on some perhaps questionable stances doctrinally. And perhaps some moral decisions that he made. 
but we will readily quote George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, white evangelical reform people who owned and bought and sold humans. And it kind of, it gives this indication that we're more concerned with being reformed than we are with being right. That we can excuse slave ownership for the sake of their doctrine and push back on a black man whose doctrine in some things may be questionable, but at the same time was preaching the gospel. Why is that? It's because down at the core of all of us, we are broken and flawed people. Amen. And, and that brokenness and that flawedness comes out, particularly when our status gets brought into question. So I want to say this on the front end. This is a quote from Tabidi and Yabwile. If you want to read up on African American theology, evangelical African American theology, I suggest you read Tabidi. He's pastor in the D.C. area. Reformed, evangelical, and, and not that that is a criteria off of which you ought to just read him, but I'm just telling you a little background. Here's what uh, Tabidi says. All our heroes have clay feet. And what he means by that is all our heroes are flawed. And this is one of the reasons we do this biography series, to remind us that there's really only one hero. And, and every person on this planet, whether known or unknown, well-known or little-known, that has done anything for the sake of the kingdom, they are not to be worshipped. They are merely prophets pointing us to the hero. Dr. King was flawed. But once again, to remind us, there is only one hero, and that is Jesus. Jesus sends flawed prophets to usher forward His kingdom rule. They're flawed so that we don't worship them. Because that's exactly what we would do. And I would argue in evangelical reform culture, we got our little gods. They're our favorite book writers and podcasters. And we often listen to them more than we read our Bibles. If you got more hours in a podcast than you have in the text, you have a little g-god. Just, just going to throw that on you. There's one hero, and his name is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. The one who sends prophets that are flawed, so that we would see him, not worship them, and worship him. And so therefore, when we come to Dr. King, I'm going to ask you to put aside some of your assumptions. And just simply go read him in his own words. Go, go to Amazon.com. And if you got Prime, you get it in two days. Order his autobiography and read him in his own words. Don't take secondhand information on Dr. King. The caricatures that many of us perhaps were raised with are simply blatantly false. We have to remember that in Scripture and in life, God uses incredibly flawed women and men to lead great movements. And we have to remember that our moral flaws... Don't always nullify the redemptive and transforming change that God renders and brings through fallen and redeemed creatures. Because any work God does through you and I in this city is done through a fallen yet redeemed creature. As we like to say, God hits straight licks with crooked sticks.
a little background to the context in which Dr. King was born. And that is the context of Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws were state and local laws that were enforced. And they enforced racial segregation in the southern United States. They were enacted by white, particularly at the time. Don't hear political leaning here, okay? I'm going to be full of extra commentary. i got 12 pages here, okay? And I'm going to slide through some stuff. And I'm going to give some commentary along the way. Don't hear modern day political categories. Okay? I'm just giving you some historical facts, okay? So what is today was not then. But what is today is not right either. You're not a citizen of Republican, Democrat, Libertarian middle. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is your king, number one. The church is the community, the fellowship of the kingdom. That's your first allegiance. Amen? Okay? So don't hear, oh, he's this or he's that or whatever. Just hear some facts, okay? These laws, Jim Crow laws, were enacted by white, Democrat-dominated state legislatures after the Reconstruction period in the late 19th century. And the laws were enforced until 1965. Some of y'all were alive in here when Jim Crow laws were still being enforced. In practice, Jim Crow laws mandated racial segregation in all public facilities in the former Confederate States of America starting in the 1870s and were upheld in 1896 by the United States Supreme Court separate but equal doctrine in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. This is the atmosphere that Dr. King was born into that he was raised in. I would argue we still today live in the dark shadow of Jim Crow laws, not legally, but practically. And in the hearts of many people. When I was studying Dr. King's life this past year, 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 17 came to mind. Abraham Zavala, Marco Zuniga, we went to a MLK conference in Memphis done by the Gospel Coalition this past April. And, and as we're learning about the life of Dr. King, particularly with two minorities, two ethnic minorities in our congregation, uh, I learned a little bit of background as to how systems affect them. Why certain folks think politically the way they do. And it's not because of issues of life versus death. But it's issues of survival. And, and, and as we're learning these things. And, and as we're taking in this information. This passage of scripture came to mind continually. And resonated in me as we studied his life. So I'd like this passage to sit as a banner over his life. And it's 2 Corinthians 2, 12-17. I can't. Spend all my time here, okay? Because we got so much to do. We're going to come to some gospel applications here in a little bit. So just hang with me. But when Paul was traveling and preaching and writing to the Corinthian church, he told them when he came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. From To one a fragrance from death to death to the other fragrance from life to life. This passage for Paul captured the providential work of God. 
You can't read the New Testament and walk away with any other picture that God led every step for Paul. So that even as he's making decisions, the Spirit is working in and through him to lead him in certain directions. And Paul says as much here when he says, I didn't know what to do here. I didn't have rest in my soul because of this. So I took leave. I did this. And then he gave thanks in verse 14 because it's God in Christ who leads us in triumphal procession. And you'll see in Dr. King's life that there were things that happened to him that is none other than God leading a flawed man in triumphal procession to spread the aroma of Christ in a system that was broken. He even goes on to say, I did not choose this, it chose me. I wasn't looking for this, it found me. So that passage resonates, and there's an application here for all of us. You are not required to determine the end. We walk by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by sight. And all our days have been written for us before there was yet one of them. Psalm 139. Our goal today is to walk, hearing and obeying as best we can what we know. And understanding that God will lead us in triumphal procession. And Charles said it this morning downstairs as he was teaching us how Jesus addressed systems. Live in that today. He will take care of the end. And that was Dr. King's life. A little bit of his early years. His mother was Alberta Williams King. Very gentle, kind, and soft-spoken. And she always lamented. By the way, if you go look at the notes on the blog, I didn't put page numbers because I didn't want you cherry-picking information. So if you want to know where something's at, go read the book. And I'll tell you this. By the way, don't ask a black person to tell you about the life of Dr. King. They're tired of that. My black friends say, go pick up a book and read it yourself. See, Miss George is like, amen, right? So, so, so go read it. So I intentionally left page numbers off so you can't cherry pick. You want to go find this out? Go read the book, all right? His mother spoke about the, the difficulty, and I'm going to use the language. I'm, I'm not, I'm, so you may be uncomfortable with some of this language here, but I'm just using Dr. King's language, okay? His mother said she lamented having to confront the age-old problem of the Negro parent in America. And that is how to explain discrimination and segregation to a small child. I I couldn't reprint for you letter from Birmingham jail. But you need to go read how Dr. King addresses the psychology of children. When you have to explain why we can't go to the circus. And why you can't go in that bathroom. And the effect of the psychology on a child that young. Having to have this kind of trauma. And we're just learning the effects of trauma on the soul and how it's manifested in children and adults later in life. His father was Michael Luther King, later changed his name to Martin. You can go read as to why. He was strong, a good communicator, strong in word and strong in physical size, very outspoken and had sharp opinions. Pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Martin Sr. hated segregation because he often had to witness his own father being cheated as a sharecropper. And he would step in as a young man to righteously seek what is good for his father, only to be shouted down by the white landowner. And then watch his father have to go along with what the landowner said for fear of losing their ability to earn a living. Martin Sr. was a president at the time of the NAACP. And Dr. King speaks about never seeing his father physically attacked like he had seen other black men attacked. 
And this fact caused Dr. King to be in awe of his daddy. That strength he watched in his dad, he took in himself as he was raised with that kind of strength that would provide steadfastness and and stick-to-itiveness as he would go under the trials that would befall him as a prophet of God, speaking on behalf of people who were oppressed. Dr. King's salvation is an interesting story because, uh, strangely enough, uh, his concept of salvation would totally, completely, I would say, fly in the face of what many of us would understand salvation to be. And crazy thing is, I understand his language because I was raised in that context. Um, Really, really strange. For, For them, for Dr. King and for me growing up, I heard this language of join the church. And join the church, particularly in his context, meant receiving Jesus for salvation because you couldn't become a member of church unless you were a Christian. So when you read Dr. King and he talks about joining a church, you have to interpret that historically through the right lens. And what he means by that is you can't join the church unless you're a Christian. And so in order to be a member of Ebenezer Baptist Church, you had to profess faith in Jesus Christ alone and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and his salvation for all who would believe. So Dr. King spoke about his sister joining the church and becoming a Christian, and he refused to be outdone by his sister. So he too became a Christian and joined the church. And I think what's beautiful about this is the fact that that something you and I would look at as probably an inferior way of coming to know Jesus, we would look down on that. Don't do that historically to people. God has worked in history long before you and I were ever conceived. He saved people through means that would blow our little tiny theological minds out of the water. Okay? And so particularly when you work around the world and you start watching the work of the gospel in other cultures, you can read things like this and go, how good is God? (laughs) They didn't do it the way I would, but by cracky, I believe he knows Jesus. Right? And so when you read him, read him properly and understand that. So even as a little fella competing with his sister, God was at work even in that competition to begin to transform his little heart. Dr. King began uh, as a little guy also as a critical thinker. Early in his life, he started having doubts about the age of 12 that were, in his words, relentless on his faith. And as a critical thinker, he began to question Some of the supernatural work of the Bible that the Bible speaks about. And even one time he speaks about questioning in their Sunday school class. And this created quite a stir because the pastor's son is bringing this up. He began to question the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that created some problems. What was happening in Dr. King's life is God had created a sharp thinker. And this would come to play later in his college education. God had created a thinker. And thinkers ask hard questions. And this little fella came to faith in Jesus. And that critical mind was learning to develop. And he was beginning to deal with hard questions. I believe one could argue that Dr. King's conversion experience was a long process. It would follow him all the way up through his college experience. To a couple professors who helped rescue some things for him. Two incidents early in his life that affected him the most. He said these are the two things that affected him the most. Number one was the death of his grandmother. Very dear to him. And it's the first time he said he began to really deal with the issue of immortality. And it also did in him almost a reverse of what some of the critical questions were doing. Because the critical questions were, this isn't possible. And when his grandmother died, his dear love for her led him to reach into the text and find hope that she's not dead, but she will live again. 
And so the love of his grandmother, God had begun to work into his life to begin to rescue him from something that would try to rob it from him later. And this is another example of the good providence of God. <laughs> is that in little, almost inconsequential circumstances, we would think God's at work. Through the death of his grandmother, to build into him this seed that, that, that what he's going to learn later in his college experience might not be the facts. The second experience that affected him the most was when he was six. One of his best friends. I said I wasn't going to do this. And dad got it. Here I am. Um, this was an emotional experience for me. So pardon me if I. Uh, um, when he was six. His best friend, a little white kid whose father had a store across the street from his house would be forced by his dad to stop being friends with Dr. King when they started school because his father demanded they could no longer play together because Dr. King was black and couldn't go to school with a black friend. And after discussing this with his family at dinner, Dr. King determined I was going to hate all white people forever. But this led to a profound question in this little thinker. How could I love a race of people who hated me and who had been responsible for breaking me up with one of my best childhood friends? Why should a child be wrestling with those kind of questions? He shouldn't, but he was. This is a little side note here. This is the result of oppression. This is the result of oppression. Either one gives in to bitterness and anger that leads to violence... Or they're constrained by love. And this is where the gospel began to work on Dr. King. Remember I said a prophet of love? Because he had, he had decisions he had to make. Either I was going to give in to bitterness and hatred and anger. Or I was going to be constrained by love. This is where gospel rubber meets the road, so to speak. The gospel saves and it fixes wrongs. It addresses attitudes and the systems that attitudes create. This would be evident in Dr. King's adopted strategy of nonviolent resistance through active love. We're gonna, I'm gonna spend most of our time there here in just a minute, and we're gonna hit some quick history, then do some application, because that's key. If you're gonna boil down his life to one thing, which is almost impossible to do, it is nonviolent resistance to oppression by love. And he went to great pains to distinguish that from pacifism. So hang tight, okay? God would intervene in his life, even in less than ideological, theological systems, to preserve his chosen prophet. I also think about Dr. King, and I think about Jeremiah. When you read Jeremiah chapter 1, who am I? Why, I can't do this, and God's word is, don't say this about yourself. Before you were born, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You speak what I put in your mouth. That, that's so true of his life. God would intervene. He talks about the angriest he ever was. And this, this, I share this with you because it gives you a glimpse into his world and his experiences. Also, as a growing young man, at the age of 14, Dr. King won an essay contest in high school. And his essay was The Negro and the Constitution. You can go find that online and read it. After presenting his paper in Dublin, Georgia, he and his teacher had to ride back to Atlanta on a bus together. 
And when a white passenger got on the bus, Dr. King and his teacher were told to get up and give their seats to the white passengers. Dr. King hesitated. And in his hesitation, the bus driver got up and swore at him and cursed at him in the most awful manner you can imagine until his teacher urged him to just, this isn't a fight worth taking, just get up and let them have the seats. So they both had to ride back to Atlanta, the hour and a half drive, standing in the back of the bus. That made him, he said, the angriest he has ever been. That makes me want to fight now. Imagine the psychology of a man and a woman and a child who has to endure this kind of treatment because they don't have options. When we come to his college years, Morehouse College, Dr. King entered Morehouse College at the age of 15. 15. Not 18. 15. Bright fellow, right? He read at Morehouse, and this was key, and this is just another example of the good providence of God leading our steps He read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience. That's the name of the essay, on civil disobedience. You can also go and find that as well. In which Thoreau refused to pay his taxes and go to jail rather than support a war that could spread slavery to Mexico. Henry David Thoreau also influenced people such as Leo Tolstoy. Gandhi. In this writing on civil disobedience. And you can begin to see now. Because these are going to be people that will influence. And by the way you should read Tolstoy. I know this isn't college level. I'm not trying to just be professor on you. But there's some people you need to read. You need to expose your life to. And begin to understand how the world is working. And how essays written in America can affect foreign policy. And where us as Christians working in the public square can affect foreign policy. If we will engage our domains with the gospel. Because later, Dr. King's going to get to go to India as an ambassador of the work that God was doing in his life just by walking this stuff out. So he entered Morehouse, read Henry David Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience. And here's what he said. I became convinced, this is huge, this is, this is, this is big, that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. I'm going to say that again because that is ground shaking. I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That's huge. This, this nugget of truth in his soul would lead to how they would engage in the bus boycotts, the sit-ins, and the marches. That they would refuse to cooperate with an evil system. Not actively fight it, just simply refuse to engage in it. Huge. While all of this internal processing is going on, Dr. King had an inner urge to serve in the ministry. There was something going on in him in which he felt this compelling to be in the pastorate, to preach. But his collegiate learning was aiding in his doubts that began as a young child, he began to be taught that the biblical accounts were myth. And he began to resent his fundamentalist Baptist heritage. Yes, he's a good Baptist. Praise God. He recovered it. He began to resent this fundamentalist Baptist heritage and its emotional expressions. And he was embarrassed by the doctrine and the emotional expression. So he began moving toward other disciplines like medicine and law. 
as his vocation. But as he entered his senior year, the president of Morehouse and another mentor through a Bible course helped him to see that at least behind what they were considering myths and legends were still profound truths that one can't escape. Now here's a note. This is a note. It's all caps in my notes. So i got to read it to you. This is not an evangelical position on the historicity of Scripture. Okay? This is not what we would consider a normative position on Scripture. God used what we, and this is huge, God used what we would consider an inadequate view of the Bible to produce actions in line with Scripture. God provided a thread of truth to keep Dr. King from abandoning the fundamentals of the faith. So in that, even in that, Dr. King gave in to what he believed was a call to ministry that was expressed all the way back in high school. He was ordained February 25th, 1948 at Ebenezer Baptist Church. In June 8th, 1948, Dr. King received his Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology from Morehouse. This led to his time and training at Crozer Seminary. Now, we're hanging here because here's these things are leading to the development of what would define his life. So Dr. King would then, in 1948-51, to 51, study at Crozer Seminary in Pennsylvania. Here, Dr. King was continually exposed to Protestant liberal theology and a multitude of philosophers that we don't agree with in Protestant evangelicalism. But why did he have to go to this kind of school? Why did he choose a conservative school? You want to know why? Because black men and black women were not allowed in conservative evangelical schools in the South. They were not allowed to enter because they were black. So any person in the black church who wanted theological training had to go to the North and go to liberal institutions. And so therefore, Jesse Jackson... And, and, and a multitude of other men who were working with Dr. King in order to get trained theologically could not attend our conservative schools. How conservative is it really? <laughs> Seriously. Right? And so, this is, this is crazy. And, and, and there was a great connection between me and this, and, and this, well, this experience because I was taught at a Protestant liberal institution. It's not that way anymore. But that's all I'm going to say about that. I was taught at a Protestant liberal institution in undergraduate school and it nearly sent me over the edge into atheism. But what it did for me was teach me how to think, not what to think. And when, by God's grace, I got my legs under me doctrinally, I became a warrior in using my mind to fight for truth. Dr. King's experience was similar, or I should say my experience was similar to his. And what he began to do is incorporate his ability to think into his practices. And he began to see in Scripture this call of God to address things systemically. And this is huge, and I want to say this. This is beautiful. I think this is beautiful. Whatever he got wrong theologically pales in comparison to what he got right in practice, even if he got there through back roads. Meaning... If we say that we believe the Bible to be the inerrant Word of God, we better start applying it down into the dirt of our world a little better. Because what he got right, he got so dead gum right, I'm ashamed that many of us can't figure out how to engage our world. And we got multiple Bibles on the shelf. We would say we believe it's the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Every stitch of it is true. If so... 
Are we practicing it? During this time, Dr. King learned the practice of loving like Jesus through the study of Gandhi. Who took Jesus' teaching on love to more practical levels than many do in the evangelical church. Gandhi said, I believe Jesus and what he taught was true. I don't believe Christians believe it. I would argue that one can glean the same strategy from Scripture alone. There are many doctrinal stances we could part with Dr. King on. And his father did not agree with some of the places he was going doctrinally. However, I would argue what he got wrong in doctrine, he made up for by his practice being spot on. He became convinced through his study and experience of God that love as nonviolent resistance to evil was the way forward. Dr. King did not believe in pacifism. He parted with Reinhold Niebuhr's view on pacifism. If you don't know who Reinhold Niebuhr is, go Google him. Because what he did was not pacifist. Some people wrongly accuse him of pacifism. He's not a pacifist. He agreed with Niebuhr's call for action, but he believed that action had to be with love, not physical, violent resistance. He believed love was not passive. But love and nonviolence was resistance. Let me say that again. He believed that love was not passive, but love, active love, was nonviolent resistance. This would be lived out in the way he responded when they bombed his home and tried to kill him. When the lady stabbed him in the department store after the release of his book on the Montgomery bus boycott. He never responded. As a matter of fact, when people would be tempted to respond, and many sometimes did respond with violent approaches, Dr. King made sure he stepped in and said, this is not how Jesus did it. We are Christians and we will respond as Christians. He knew and understood that turning the other cheek was an active experience. He said that's not passivism, that's active resistance with love. Mm. Dr. King confronts so many many bents in me that are broken. And the justification I give to some things I think and likely would practice. For those who want to put a label on Dr. King as heretic, and unfortunately we throw that language around too easy in our circles. We were far too easy to throw that word around. We need to be careful throwing that word around. I want you to listen to this doctoral student at Southern Seminary. Yes, Southern Seminary. One of our flagship seminaries in the convention. Um, listen to this doctoral student responding to the tag heretic that many might put on Dr. King. Folks who dismiss Dr. King as a heretic over a dissertation he wrote in his 20s at a liberal seminary, but great theologically informed racist man-stealers are simply having theological blind spots. Having... He says they have absolutely no theological credibility. It's insidious. Dr. King applied to multiple conservative seminaries and they rejected him because he was black. He then goes to a liberal seminary, writes a dissertation there, graduates, joined a conservative denomination, and white theologians want to reject him based on his dissertation. In other words, we're going to force you into a box, Dr. King. Either you do not get educated and live as an ignorant black man, or you pursue the only education you're allowed as a black man and we'll use it against you throughout your life and forever after your death. Kyle Howard. I received his permission to share that. So let's be careful when we look at his education and go, no, 
But then, as I said in the beginning, receive people who are man-stealers and their doctrine as normative. All our heroes have clay feet. There's one hero, and they all point us, those legitimate heroes point us to Jesus. Dr. King, as a result of his work, had a chance to visit India. He made this statement when he left India. I became more convinced than ever before that nonviolent resistance was the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom. It was a marvelous thing to see the amazing results of a violent campaign. India won her independence, but without violence on the part of Indians. The aftermath of hatred and bitterness that usually follows a violent campaign was found nowhere in India. The way of acquiescence or compliance leads to moral and spiritual suicide. The way of violence leads to bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. But the way of nonviolence leads to redemption and the creation of the beloved community. Dr. King stated over and over again, my goal is not to dominate white people, but to be equal with, reconciled with, worship together, and love the Lord our God together. Dr. King believed that central to this movement was preaching. Preaching. Meaning pastors ought to stand in pulpits and preach, thus says the Lord, and all those implications. He saw it as a call to a prophetic ministry of proclaiming with intelligence yet profound convictions, doctrines applied in light of the people's settings and circumstances. In other words, he didn't want to see us dwell in the ivory tower of mere thought, but we need to take those truths down into the dirt of the difficulty of the lives of our people and figure out God's system of solutions. He believed preaching should never be left in the fog of theological abstraction. In other words, preaching had to move from the theological down to the specific needs and sins of a society. This is one of the reasons you'll hear if you hang out around me long enough, I will say you need to speak prophetically to that. And people get confused. What do you mean prophetically? I said, do you read the prophets? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. Then there's 12 tiny ones. We call them minor prophets. Not because they're short, but because... But, 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 you know, because, you know, they spoke at a different time and they are shorter. So here, it's not that their message is less than, but go read Habakkuk. How did Habakkuk address the people? You go and do likewise. And so if you can read your Bible, prophetically means go and address it the way they did. Taking God's word. And massaging it down into that situation until there's a kingdom solution. You understand? That's how you do it. The solutions aren't easily recognizable right off the bat because they're going to call you a communist. And a Marxist. And then the, I can't say this one right now, but even other things that get posted on Facebook about you. Right, Jeff? Right? So, so all manner of things. If you begin To speak the word of the Lord applied to your culture. The gospel centered people are going to come after you then. Because you're not worried about salvation. No, we're worried about salvation and fixing what's broken. Because Ephesians 1, 7 to 10 says that this mystery of the gospel is that all things are being reconciled back to Jesus. Why? Because he's the creator of the universe. And he's saving people and fixing the world. Colossians 1, 15 to 20, right? Revelation 20, 21 and 22. He's not getting rid of this thing. He's fixing it. Eden will be restored. Systems will be fixed. 
And our message is the salvation of people and the salvation of created order. And that's heaven. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Read Isaiah. It's in the manual. That Jesus is fixing it all. And we have to move from theological abstraction. Are you reformed? Down into, what does your reformed theology say to you right now in the middle of this difficult moment? Can you stand firm believing that the sovereignty of God is your sanity? If not, we don't believe it. So Dr. King recognized that if this is how Jesus addressed it, so must we. He said preaching was central. And I want to challenge us and continue to challenge us as we stand in this place, as we gather, as we go to our workplaces, are we preaching? Because it's not just pastor's job to preach prophetically, it's every follower of Jesus Christ who has a prophetic ministry. To speak the word of the Lord. Well, gosh, I took more time there than I intended, but that's okay. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, we're about to speed up. Here's where life circumstances intersected with the providential timing of the divine sovereignty of God. Dr. King said that he felt this moment sought him out. He did not seek it out himself. After weighing options for an academic career as a professor or as a dean in an academic institution, which there were options there, there was a sense of calling to the pastorate to preach and lead, and particularly with the temptation to stay in the north away from Jim Crow laws, there was this this call to go back south. Mm. Lord, help me. There's so many connections between his life and some of my tiny little wanderings. Why don't I come back to Rome? Good God. I ain't king. Know that. But I sure go, good Lord. God does that kind of stuff. He felt this call to preach the gospel through the local church in the south. To be in the South to be hard work, but to be a healing agent of racism that he experienced growing up in the South was a call in his life. So he moved South, took the work at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, joined the NAACP and the Alabama Council on Human Rights. On December 5th, 1955, though, the Montgomery movement began. Not long after taking the pastorate in Montgomery, there was a defining moment that would launch him into his role as a civil rights leader and it would test his belief in nonviolent resistance to evil. Because all this stuff had been theory and now it's time to practice. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up a seat in the front of the bus to protest Jim Crow laws that treated black people like second-class citizens. She was arrested and her trial was set for December 5th. E.D. Nixon and Ralph Abernathy, who was pastor of First Baptist Montgomery, suggested... To Dr. King that there be a bus boycott. As a necessary effort to bring attention to this issue. They agreed and they set a meeting for Saturday morning. More than 40 people showed up. So they planned this boycott for Monday the 5th. The day of Rosa Parks trial. Black folks would not ride the bus to work. School or any other place. They'd take a cab. Share a ride or walk. And then they'd gather for a mass meeting. Monday evening at 7 o'clock in the evening. To see how things went. During this time, a black person would have to step onto the front of the bus to pay to ride, then get off the bus and go to the back of the bus to ride standing up. Often the bus driver would leave them before they could get back on the bus. So Rosa Parks said no. 
Dr. King's conscience was at work in this movement because he was concerned that as a Christian that our boycott be uniquely Christian. And here was his reasoning because this type of approach had been used by the White Citizens Council to keep Jim Crow laws in place. They too would boycott certain things in order to keep Jim Crow laws in place. So his concern was that we not act like them. He was so moved by the Scriptures that his actions dictated his conscience. I mean, amen. Should ours too, right? He wondered, is this unchristian that we do this? Is it a negative approach? I have a lengthy quote here. I just want to read it. I have to, I'm sorry. I had to recognize the boycott method could be used to, to unethical and unchristian ends. Here's a guy that people want to accuse of being liberal or heretic, and he's concerned that their boycott's unchristian. Rethink that trash. He said, I had to concede further that this was the method used so often to deprive many Negroes, as well as white persons, of goodwill on the basic necessities of life. But certainly our pending actions could not be interpreted in this light. Our purposes were altogether different. We would use this method to give birth to justice and freedom and urge men to comply with the law of the land. Right? This would just simply obey the laws. There are laws in place for this. You're not obeying them. As I thought further, I came to see that what we were really doing was withdrawing our cooperation from an evil system rather than merely withdrawing our support from the bus company. Remember what, he, what we said earlier about not complying with an evil system is, is, is as much resistance as going along with what's good, right? So we were withdrawing our cooperation from an evil system rather than simply withdrawing support from the bus company. The bus company being an external expression of the system would naturally suffer, but the basic aim was to refer... or. Uh, was uh, to refuse cooperation with evil. The boycott was a success. And so as a result of all of this, they were able to begin to make headway. All they wanted to see was a courteous treatment by the bus operator. Passengers to be seated on a first-come, first-served basis. We don't want to be seated anywhere special, just first-come, first-served. Nothing wrong with that, right? And then that Negro bus operators would be employed on predominantly Negro routes. And so basically a year-long campaign came to successful end. Don't have time to unpack all of that. You can go read the notes. You can go read it, the book yourself. But this struggle will begin to expand. February 14, 1957, Dr. Keene becomes the head of the SCLC, the Southern, Southern, Leadership, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. After the integration of the bus lines, a wave of bombings ripped through Montgomery. Ralph Abernathy's home and church were bombed. More attempts were made to bomb Dr. King's home. By the way, when his home was bombed the first time, he began to rethink some of the theology he was taught at Crozer and even at Boston University. And all those things early in his childhood about his grandmother and these beliefs in the supernatural work of God began to come back. Parents, this is side note. Your time investing that truth in your children won't be wasted. The seed of the gospel will always produce fruit. Always produce fruit. So all the way back to even his grandmother's death. When those moments happen, they bomb my house. Where do you reset to? You reset to that training. (laughs) So don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. He addressed a crowd that gathered at his home after the bombing. He said, we must not return violence under any condition. I know this is difficult advice to follow, he said, especially since we've been victims now of no less than ten bombings. But this is the way of Jesus Christ. It is the way of the cross. We must somehow believe that unearned suffering is redemptive. 
Hmm. May 17, 1957, he would host uh, uh, leaders uh, and he would, lo- he would host leaders uh, and there would be the pilgrimage to uh, Washington, D.C. to commemorate the third anniversary of the Supreme Court decision to outlaw segregation. Here he makes uh, the speech, give us the ballot. 1958, Dr. King and other leaders meet with President Eisenhower and the movement begins to grow. September 17th. 1958, Dr. King's first book is published, Stride Toward Freedom, the Montgomery Story. Three days later, he's stabbed in a Harlem department store by Ozola Ware Curry. Had he sneezed, they left the the letter opener in his chest. Had he sneezed, it was just tiny, tiny, tiny way away from main arteries. He would have died. One of the most impactful things that happened to him in that, a white lady wrote him a letter that said, when he had made that statement, had I sneezed, I would have died. And her response is, I'm glad you didn't sneeze. That impacted him so much that he included the letter in his autobiography. 1959, Dr. King visits India and continues to affirm the growth of his commitment to nonviolent action. 1960, he moves from Montgomery to Atlanta to devote his whole life and his attention of the work to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Gets an audience within presidential candidate, John F. Kennedy. But by the way, just read some of that. Kennedy didn't do an awful lot for that. He wasn't very helpful, strangely enough would be his successor that would be more helpful than that. And depending on how you see JFK and, you know, who wants his face, depending on your view of conspiracies, you're like, what's this guy trying to do? Anyway, don't want to go down that road. Uh, October 19th, 1960, Dr. King is arrested during a sit-in demonstration at Rich's department store in Atlanta. He's sentenced to four months hard labor for violating a suspended sentence he received for a 1956 traffic violation. He's released on $2,000 bond. October 27th, Harry Belafonte raised inordinate amounts of money so that as they protested and would be arrested, they could get them out of jail. So there were massive fundraising campaigns in order to just get people out of jail. So they could go and just simply sit at the lunch counter. And when you broke the Jim Crow law, they'd put you in jail. And then they would go bail them out of jail. So think about Harry Belafonte. God was at work and Harry Belafonte could get people out of prison. 1963, April 16th of 63, Dr. King pens his letter from Birmingham jail in response to a piece written by, quote, clergy. I'm embarrassed they use that term. Questioning the timing of the movement's boycotting of businesses and their peaceful protest. They called the protest unwise and untimely. You should go read it. I put a link in the notes for you to go read the letter. May 7th, conflict in Birmingham reaches its peak uh, when they use high-pressure fire hoses on the demonstrators in the business district. Eugene Bull Connor begins to employ dogs and clubs and cattle prods to dispense 4,000 demonstrators in Birmingham. August 28th, the March on Washington for Jobs. Uh, More than 200,000 people attend. At the Lincoln Memorial, this is where Dr. King delivers his I Have a Dream speech. Um, September 18th, Dr. King delivers the eulogy of the funerals of Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, and Cynthia Diane Wesley, three of the four children who were killed during the 15th September bombing in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And I put a a clip for you to go listen to that eulogy. It'll... 1964, March 26th, Dr. King meets briefly with Malcolm X. I don't have time to go through X, but I'm telling you, God was at work in that man. And it was through Dr. King until he was assassinated. Those are things you won't often read. But Dr. King had compassion for him. And Malcolm X was simply the product of bitterness and hate. Dr. King was the product of the gospel producing love. Two, two opposite extremes. And, and Malcolm X was listening to Dr. King until he was murdered. 
don't have time to go through that. Since 1965, March 7, marked the Selma to Montgomery March. Horrible day in which marchers would be attacked by state police for their march. Lyndon Johnson on August 6, 1965 would sign the Voting Rights Act into law allowing black people to vote. 1965. 53 years. It's only been 53 years, y'all. In our country. We would say the most free place in the world only for 53 years have black people had the right to vote. Then would come Memphis, 1968. He would lead, Dr. King would lead a march of 6,000 protesters in support of the striking sanitation workers, black and white, in Memphis. The march would descend into violence. Dr. King would be rushed from the scene. April 3rd, Dr. King returns to Memphis, determined to lead a peaceful march. And during the evening rally at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Dr. King delivers his speech, I've been to the mountaintop, which you heard an excerpt from. I'll put a clip for you to listen to that as well. On April 4th, 1968, Dr. King is murdered by James Earl Ray while standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. 39 years old. 39 years old. Simply for working for freedom. Working for freedom. April 9th, Dr. King is buried in Atlanta. And I haven't done his life justice. So let's get to some quick applications. You're like, it's not quick. Shut up. But here we go. Number one. We have to be a prophetic people who are God's voice in our world for the truth of God's kingdom. Listen, church, we need to move beyond isolating ourselves for fear of being tainted by the world to being a people with a prophetic voice in the word of God as our banner and our herald to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and the application to the systems of our world. Jesus, when he came and spoke to issues of the Pharisees and Charles downstairs, my friend Charles loves speaking to us as a black man, seeing the scriptures through the lens of Jesus addressing systems was gold for you guys who attended that. But the truth of the matter is that systems are all over the Bible created by men and Jesus came opposing those, speaking the word of the Lord and they hated him for it. So just know this, if you speak to systems in our world, you will be disliked. And I would argue it's not because you're just speaking against systems. You're speaking the word of God to those systems that calls for the laying down of power and the equality of people and giving power to people who don't have it. And you know what? Where there's money and power involved, people fight back hard. Idols fight fiercely. So Three Rivers Church, I want to call you to be a people who speak the word of the Lord to your world. You have a ministry when you leave here today. You will encounter people at work tomorrow, all week long. Speak the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Number two, let's not be pawns in a political system to keep powers in be, or to keep powers that be in power. Rather, we are to be a kingdom of priests to God and agents of the kingdom of Jesus. We live in a system that is seeking our Power as a voting block. And I want to say to you, do not be a pawn. Refuse to be complicit with any agenda that isn't Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can't be bought. We should not be bought. You hear me? Dr. King was constantly being trotted at from both sides. And he refused to stand on anything other than God's word applied to their day 
And it cost him his life. They might not shoot you and me. But they will shoot verbal barbs. And they will ostracize and set aside and marginalize. Don't be pawns in any political system. Whether governmental or subcultural political system. Because I promise you in Christian subculture. You talk too much of this stuff. They'll call you crazy. Set aside. Like, why are you doing that? That's not gospel centered. I just, I'm, okay, I'm going to be very careful. If you can put gospel on the end of it now, you can sell it. And any and everybody's doing that now. They can create something and put gospel at the end of it. And people just, whoa, buy it, buy it, buy it. If there's money to be made, somebody will stick gospel on it, put it in your face, and we can go buy it. Can I just say to us as a people, go to your Bible. Read Scripture, become a student of the Bible, and let God begin to dictate how we engage and how we speak. Listen, there's nothing wrong with reading good writers and listening to good sermons. But the best sermon ever preached is held right here, Genesis to Revelation. And it's written none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And so read it, study it, and when the Spirit of God tells you to do something, obey Him without question, without justification, just do it. He can do more through you than he ever did through Francis Chan, Mark Dever, Matt Chandler, whoever. Jesus doesn't need any superstars. He doesn't need known people. He wants unknown people who will be willing to point to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You be that person. Chris said this last Sunday and it stuck in my craw as we celebrated and remembered our foster work and, and the work in our town and our families and our church. God's sovereignty is our sanity. From Dr. King's early doubts leading him to become a sharp thinker to God's designs to place him in Montgomery right when he did. God was ordaining every step of Dr. King's life. And God doesn't love you or me any less. Trust that as we walk by faith and not by sight, we're right where God wants us to be. If you walk by faith and not by sight. So here's a call here. Here's a call. And that call is to know God, know His Word, and walk in obedience to Him. Discipleship. We say it, discipleship at Three Rivers Church is hear and obey. Know God's Word, hear it, obey. It means from baby Christian to old Christian, we all can walk together at the same time and hear in the Lord and obey Him. Trusting God's sovereignty is our sanity. Number four, we have a responsibility to make application of the gospel to salvation and simultaneously to justice. Justice is bound up in the cross of Jesus Christ and His justifying work. I preached this to myself yesterday driving to Daniel's basketball game up in Chattooga where we beat the Indians. Forks up, right? Forks up. Go Blue Devils. We beat Chattooga Indians. Woo-hoo. And I, I was going over this point in my head over and over and over. And I preached it to myself. And I might have got saved again. I'm not sure. This was good for my soul. <laughs> but those who say justice has no place with the gospel message haven't read the book of Romans very clearly. The root word of our most favorite word in Romans is justification. And the root of that word is justice. If God doesn't do justice, there's no salvation. Romans 3, 21-26, I can't preach that. There are books written on that passage. But God's sense of justice is the basis by which you and I come to Him and are acquitted of our sin. 
Because God doesn't wink at sin. I, I see that jolly, but I'm going to pretend like I didn't. That's not how God operates. He, he saw Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and David. And he passed over their sin. He let them go. If he does that and stays with that, he is evil. But he didn't let them go. Because in the fullness of time, the creator, Jesus Christ, the one who made Adam, and Noah, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and Rahab, right? The one who made them came and he took on flesh. And he dwelled among us and we saw his glory. And he lived a perfect life. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. And in the fullness of time, God the Father put him on the cross. And executed justice for all of their sin, your sin, my sin, past, present, and future. And he put him in the grave. And on the third day, he rose and he paid for sin. So that those of us who believe by faith get our sin wiped out and get his righteousness. So God's not winking at my sin. He's going righteous because Jesus is righteous. God did justice in the earth so we could be saved. Therefore, those of us who are saved by the justice of God must then turn around and do justice in all domains of society in the name of Jesus. So I don't care who they are, what book they've written, and what document they signed. If they say justice has no place in the gospel, ignore them. They're ignoring their Bible. I don't care how popular they are. You hear me? Without justice, we're not saved. And God who did justice in the earth demands we go and do justice in the earth. And Jesus set the example. That's a whole other sermon. You have, listen, the Pharisees came, right? And, and, and Jesus addressed this when, when they, when they said, in the law it's written, honor your father and your mother. But, but rather than honoring your father and your mother, Jesus said, you've, You've taken that and you've given it as a gift to God. They called it Corban. And Jesus said, you've taken the doctrines of, of men and you've taught them as doctrines of God. I call that, I refer to that. If you're around me enough, you'll hear me talk about putting a Christian t-shirt on an idol. That's what that is. You take a commandment of God, extrapolate it out, create a system. Well, rather than honoring your parents by supporting them in their old age, let's give that as a tithe to the church. That's spiritual. And Jesus said, you've nullified the commandment of God for the tradition of men. Those are systems. And those are all over culture. And most of them are unseen. They're assumed. And the only way you know you break them is when there's backlash at you. Get out of my store. You have a black kid. Leave. Didn't know I broke. Uh Uh-oh. Time to leave. Right? And so... Let's be people who bring justice to bear on the earth. Make sense? It's a gospel issue. That should be settled for you. Don't go read any more declarations by podcast preachers and book writers. Just read your Bible. Hear what you've done this morning and go do justice. Okay? It is gospel work. We have to learn to love well, not just be against something well. 
We're known for what we're against. Are we known for love and gentleness and kindness to those who are outside? I'm preaching tough to those inside. Because we need to be reminded. But do, do we love well outside? Let's learn to be well, love well, not just be against things well. Sin, this is the last point and I'm done. And you're like, thank God. Sin ignored today affects generations tomorrow. You've heard me say this before. Sin is atmospheric. It's systemic. Sin ignored today affects generations tomorrow. Example, slavery and Jim Crow. Let's not leave sin intact for our children to have to deal with later. We're still living in the shadow of those things psychologically and sociologically. It's because our forefathers refused to deal with it. By not allowing Dr. King and his contemporaries to study in evangelical schools, our ancestors sowed cancerous seeds that we're still reaping fruit from today. And we want to complain that they don't share our theology. Well, it's our fault. Don't be fooled into believing that a refusal to only preach the gospel applied to our eternal destinies and not applied to our cities and states and nations is a full gospel because it's not. If the only thing we're concerned about is your eternal destiny and then leaving people down in places where there's zero upward mobility into the coming kingdom, we've not preached the gospel applied everywhere. Because here's the crazy thing. You've got to leave America to preach that gospel. What are you going to say to people who have no option ever of achieving any middle class status? What are you going to offer them? Well, you need to offer them salvation, but you need to offer them a way for them to turn and make a difference in their world. Yeah, I'm going to stop. I think it's probably enough. Dear Three Rivers Church, I want to say this to you and affirm you. I don't think this is a foreign message to you. I don't think I'm preaching to newbies. You know this. We've been living this for many years. It's cost us severely. I, I promise you this. If we were in a bigger building and did a little more kicking stuff and applied to, and, and, and really appealed to people's little idols, man, we'd have, we'd have a thousand people in that building. But you know what you are? You know what you are? You're a remnant of prophets who are changing the world. You're known in South Rome and you're known around the planet. Even if you're not known in preacher circles in Rome Floyd County. And I'd die for that. That makes me happy. I'd rather be unknown among preacher circles and known by the demons. Uh, I don't know who that is, but them Three Rivers people, crazy. We better come, a, we better get after them. Better get after them. So three of us, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm, I really don't think I'm motivating you to action you're not doing. I hope today we've given you a little fuel on the fire. I hope we've given you an example to go imitate. King was just imitating Jesus. But you now have Jesus in the manual and you've seen somebody who did it in our modern world. Now listen, ready? Go do likewise. Go do likewise. But before we do, the fuel and goal of all that is that we make much of Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to join together in worshiping the Lord. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come, lead us in some songs, and we're going to get after it. Um, yeah, Lord, it's awesome. I preached an hour. Yes. 
My soul has been ministered to. It's all out. Mm, thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, I do ask this morning three simple things. Number one, Father, help us to think your thoughts on this. Holy Spirit, counsel us into the way of Jesus. And then Jesus, help us to be the body, hands and feet that make application today and tomorrow and the rest of the week. And we pray this in Jesus' name.